We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Uh, welcome everybody, Steve with Sons of Fidelium, coming at you on the 31st of January, 2020, St. John Bosco Day. Here we have a Father Joseph Melak in the Diocese of Charlotte, but it, it, I'm, if I'm correct, it's, you're in a different, you have a different bishop, right? Yes, um, I'm a priest of the Eparchy of St. Josephat in Parma. Parma is a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. My bishop is a bishop uh, of the St. Josephat Eparchy in Parma. But the territory stretches uh, much larger than most or all uh, Latin dioceses in, in definitely in the country. Okay, okay. Well, I brought Father on just to go over. Uh, he's a Byzantine priest. Uh, he actually does the, uh, the land right as well. I, I'm pretty sure he does extraordinary form, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to come in and give a history of the Byzantine rites uh, and all that goes around with it, because not a lot of people in the States, especially, know they know about the Byzantines, but they don't know really the history of it. And, you know, what is this? I mean, I just learned about a couple months ago about the 12 bells and the 12 bells cracked. I thought that was really cool, but I'm sure most people don't know about that one either. But anyway, Father, take it away. All right. Well, um, I've been studying this since I was about 18, 19. Um, so I'm going to have to condense into just a few minutes uh, over, goodness, uh, 15 years of, of study, more, more, more years of study. So I think the, the best way to uh, see it is, okay, let's put it this way. There's a common um, mis- understanding or people speak slightly incorrectly when they use a term the eastern church or the eastern right as though that were just one uh, in the same way that the the latin church or the western church uh, is is one it's actually a little bit more complicated and nuanced than that so um <clears throat> you have to go all the way back to pentecost the holy spirit descends on the apostles they begin to speak in tongues the different uh, languages uh, of the people to whom they uh, they will go uh, who they will evangelize so the apostles go forth throughout the known world uh, especially throughout the roman empire the known universe at the time and they begin to evangelize the peoples around them and so what usually happens when something like that, well, what actually did happen was they took the one gospel of our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that gospel message, for all intents and purposes, met with the local languages, uh, the local cultures, the local customs of the people. And as the Catholic Church uh, has 
been an expert at doing, it takes all that is good in that local culture and has baptized it. So, uh, you, for example, you would have one apostle going, St. Peter went from Antioch to, to Rome, uh, St. Mark went to Alexandria in Egypt, uh, St. Andrew by tradition goes through Constantinople uh, up that way, St. James by tradition through, through to Spain, uh, St. Philip uh, through to, down to Ethiopia, St. Thomas to India, and so on and so forth. That's the natural uh, spreading of the gospel of our Lord throughout the known world. And uh, <clears throat> the liturgies that developed in those areas of the world was, were the, was the result of the gospel meets the people. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, another thing you have to keep in mind is the political history, so the, the Roman Empire. So in the Roman Empire, you had the metropolis, so the, the, the various metropolises uh, around. So uh, Rome was always the elder, the first, uh, was where the, emp- the emperor sat, where the, the seat of the empire. And so, of course, the language uh, uh, at the time of uh, Latin was the educated language also. I, I believe various people spoke Greek as a lingua franca and so on. It was really a, a hustle and, 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 and bustling place. And so um, the, what happens is the, um, the various um, cities, important cities of the empire, become centers of Christianity. Uh, and, and what happens is um, the various liturgies develop in, in that area of, of the empire and various bishoprics become established. So the first of all the bishops, um, East and West would agree on that, was always Rome. The, the, the bishop of, or the Pope of Rome was always the first of all the bishops in the world. And then you, and so because Rome was the important city. And then around the time of the Council of Nicaea, so you fast forward about 300 years or so, uh, two other cities become prominent. You have Alexandria in Egypt, which was founded by Alexander the Great. It was a great center of learning and culture. There was a, a famous library there, for example. Um, that becomes an important sea. And then Antioch, another Greek-speaking city with a Syriac-speaking countryside, the Greek-speaking city of Antioch becomes an important sea. And then in the year 312 to 13, uh, rewinding a little bit, of course, Constantine experiences his conversion to Christianity. Uh, he wins the Battle of, of Milvian Bridge, and then he uh, proclaims the Edict of Milan, which uh, legalizes Christianity. And so, and then fast forward to 331, he moves the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome, Elder Rome, to what he calls Nea Roma, New Rome. Uh, the ancient word, the ancient name was Byzantion, uh, Byzantium in its Latinized form, and then he renames it Constantinople. In his humility, of course, he names the city after himself, Constantinople. So uh, Byzantium and Constantinople are, are, are synonymous in history. And eventually that becomes the second city. It's very interesting that even though the emperor moves there, in the order of precedence in the church, Rome, Elder Rome, was always given precedence uh, because of its uh, antiquity, its patrimony. Constantinople uh, takes second place. Alexandria gets bumped down to third, and then Antioch is fourth. And then eventually uh, by, I believe by 500s, one of the ecumenical councils, I think names uh, also adds Jerusalem. I mean, you would think Jerusalem would be the most important, but actually Jerusalem takes a, 
a nice fifth place in that, uh, in that hierarchy. So you have what's called the pentarchy, the five important metropolises of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the known world. And in those five cities, you have the five bishops, the bishops of, of Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. One is in the west, that's obviously Elder Rome, and the other four are in the east, Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch, and Jerusalem. So you have, basically, to, to, to make it simple, a western and an eastern half, if you will, of the empire. Of course, Elder Rome falls in the 470s, I think 476, if I'm not mistaken, and eventually the focus shifts to Constantinople, and Constantinople starts growing, and the Eastern Roman Empire, um, so the Roman Empire continues, but it continues in the East more, more so than in the West. It brings over the tradition of, 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 of canon law under Justinian. It brings in the tradition of, um, of uh, also it has very important uh, church fathers, so the Cappadocians and so on, that are emanating from Asia Minor and those parts of, of, of the world. But Rome was always considered ecclesiastically as the, as the important elder city, the first, the primus. Uh, eventually, so what happens in the first millennium or so? There are tensions between the Latin West and, let's say, the Greek East. Um, the East has more languages. Remember, I said that uh, there's a common misnomer that, that the Eastern Church, the Eastern Rhine, it's actually, uh, there's a little more to it than that. There are a few more languages, there are more important, there are a few traditions, but Greek, you know, becomes the important, uh, uh, if you will, the, the larger brother, the bigger brother, the languages. So the, let's just say the Latin West and the Greek East, or the East in general. Yeah. There, there are tensions throughout, and the tensions are often political, um, as the case may be. You know, you didn't have the nation state in those days as you have now. Uh, you had various different uh, groupings, which may be organized under an empire or something, but... Uh, so the tensions start to arise, things like, you know, different languages. So people aren't able to communicate with each other less and less and less so as, as the millennium uh, goes along. And people become estranged from each other. There's no email, there's no, there's no Zoom, there's no Twitter. You know, you don't know each other. So what happens after a while, and socially this is true, you, the less you know, the more suspicious you are. The more suspicious you are, the less you trust, the less you trust the more you begin to perceive the other as somehow not your own, somehow uh, an enemy of sorts. And uh, things just boil um, in, in, to, to greater or to lesser intensities as that first millennium goes along. So, for example, things under um, Patriarch Photius uh, in the ninth century, uh, things begin to get a little, a little heated at that point. And then uh, things basically go up and down, up and down until... Um, the the common date that's given for the what's called the Great Schism between the East and the West is 1054. Although you know scholars often say that well that's that's it's not as clean as that. It was just the date when uh, the Pope had sent Cardinal Humbert from Rome to Constantinople, and Cardinal Humbert really didn't like the Greeks so much. So what he did was he excommunicated Pipel, uh, Patriarch Michael. Kerularios and Patriarch Michael reciprocated and it was funny because you had Antioch <laughs> standing in in the distance saying hold on guys what are you doing let's just break it up but again if you have all this tension going back and forth and then of course the um 
invasions of the Arab tribes uh, was really the big threat uh, at the time. And the uh, Eastern Roman Empire just decreasing and decreasing in, in land, uh, also in influence, in, in, in resources. And so the East begins to look more and more towards the West for, for political assistance, military assistance. Unfortunately, many people in the West view the East as somehow you know, inferior, um, not quite uh, uh, good or true Christians because, you know, the, the notion of that they're not praying in Latin, they're not praying in the Latin right. So again, they, if they grow up with these kinds of prejudices, then they start to, um, to, to shun them a little bit. So you have all this political back and forth, back and forth, and uh, of course, this doesn't uh, help the, uh, the East with, with trust towards the West and things just break. Um, and then, so you have a, a long time, hundreds and hundreds of years of, of mistrust, of division, of, um, of just not speaking with each other, not understanding each other, um, not experiencing each other. And then of course, when things finally explode, it's just the end of uh, a process that's been going on and on and on for a while. Um, so really what you have, and there's, there's a beautiful icon of St. Peter and St. Andrew, the two brothers embracing, uh, you know, with their, their instruments of, of torture and execution, St. Peter with the upside down cross and Andrew with the X cross next to him, is that the icon of the, the two, uh, two halves of Christendom, if you will, embracing, the two brothers embracing. Um, well, well, you know, you can almost say that there was a family feud and the two brothers became estranged, the two brothers didn't speak to each other anymore. So the two halves of Christendom bifurcate. Uh, so you have these ancient uh, bishoprics, these ancient sees, S-E-E-S, you have these ancient traditions which stretch all the way back to the apostles. Uh, each one of these uh, Christian traditions stretch all the way back to the apostles, all of a sudden uh, in, in schism, in schism. And that then continues uh, for about 500 more years or so. Two of the ecumenical councils of the, um, called by the, the Latin church, uh, namely Lyon in 1274 and Florence in uh, 1439, try to fix the schism. And the, the big issue at the time was especially in Lyon, that the, the doctrine of purgatory was becoming to be formulated in the West in a way that was, uh, let's say, uh, the, the Easterners didn't have that uh, explanation. They, they all, both sides had always prayed for the deceased. So that the general idea of a state after death uh, of souls that needed to be prayed for, both sides agreed with it. But then, of course, you had the one side speaking in, in Latin and especially scholastic theology, the other side speaking in Greek, uh, with the, the, the patristic theology, uh, all of a sudden saying, well, this, this can't be the same. And so, um, uh, and then of course, the, um, the growing influence of, the, of the, the papacy on a temporal basis. So the Pope having lands and so on, uh, seemed to the East to be, uh, you know, somehow wrong. And so, of course, but then you also have the cultural uh, mistrust between the two. They even had names they called each other. I think the, uh, the Latins would call them the, uh, the perfidious little Greek, and the, uh, the Greek insult for the Latins was the, uh, the, the reckless, crazy Italian. That's sort of the, the name that they had for each other. 
um, Graeculus perfidulus and uh, Italos Itamos. I, I still remember that from studying this. So again, you have these cultural things. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, certain countries of Europe. Um, a war might have been fought 500 years ago, but they still hate each other, and no one really knows why. Um, but but it's it's there you go, and it's seeped in the culture, and so and then Florence comes around, and in in the Council of Florence, the the Greek bishops actually sign uh, the union, uh, but by the time they take the union back to their people, the people uh, sort of is a populist rejection of the union. And, and, and two, two important, especially one important mark of Ephesus, the bishop uh, sort of rallies against the union. And of course that just fails. And then Rome eventually decides uh, that uh, it, the whole idea of reuniting with the East as a whole isn't gonna work. It doesn't seem like it's gonna work. So we, they, what they do is they come up with a, a different uh, strategy. And the different strategy is that they they try to, let's say, persuade, I'm going to use a neutral word here, uh, small sections of uh, the, uh, what we now know as the Orthodox East to come back into union with Rome. Um, and on the mean, in the meantime, in the East, those small sections are finding this offer pretty attractive because they find themselves in socially very difficult situations. So to give one example, in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Orthodox uh, were often you know, treated as second-class citizens. They didn't have the same rights in Parliament and so on. Uh, and so they wanted some social standing. So to sign a union with Rome, uh, but Rome made the offer irresistible in one sense because Rome had said to them that they would guarantee the retention of all of their traditions. So their, their liturgies, their feast days, their customs, all could be retained. And then issues of doctrine, the uh, Easterners uh, said that they would, you know, submit to, to church, to the, to the guidance of the church uh, in matters such as praying for the souls after death and language there too, and, and things of that nature. The first of those unions was 1595 to six, uh, the Union of Brest, which is the origin of what is now known as the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church, uh, which is the, the uh, church to which I canonically belong, the largest of the Eastern churches in union with Elder Rome, with uh, the older Rome. And then of course, between then and 1930 with the Syro Melankara, church in India, various other groups uh, signed various unions with Rome under the same premises, the same premises, Rome doing what the Catholic Church has always really done, recognizing uh, something that's, well, in this case, it was apostolic. So the liturgy was apostolic. So it's senseless to say, well, that has to all be, say, rejected and everyone has to now adopt the Latin rite but because it traces its origin back to an apostle, it's apostolic, mm -hmm. it means it's venerable and, and antique and needs to be preserved for posterity, just like the Latin rite. Yeah. Uh, then we, we have a, we can, we, what we have to do is we have to preserve that. So we allow these Christians to keep all of this uh, rather than to jettison it, which is really their greatest fear. And, uh, and then in the meantime, on the, other, and on the other hand, all of a sudden, communion was reaffirmed uh, with, with Rome, a communion that 
that once existed in the first millennium, uh, even though there were these different traditions, even though there were these legitimate variations in the church, there was communions. So really what we are doing now in the Christian East, the various Eastern churches, because there are all these different churches and different traditions that came into union, we are a living uh, example, not only of what communion was in the first millennium, but we are also an example to those Eastern Christians who are not in communion uh, with Rome, what it can and should be like mm -hmm. uh, in that communion of the, of the first millennium. So there are multiple Eastern liturgies, Eastern churches, Eastern traditions, which are in union with Rome. And it's actually quite fascinating because there are about 22 or so uh, Eastern Catholic churches. And the reason they use the word churches is because a tradition always has a, a bishop, a hierarchy. Uh, there is a bishop that is at the head, and that comes straight out of St. Ignatius of Antioch. St. Ignatius of Antioch sort of really writes in the third century uh, about, uh, about really where is the Catholic church. There, the, the, where the bishop is, there is there is Christ, there is the Catholic Church. And so the, having a hierarchy is um, the ecclesiologically there, it's the sort of grouping uh, Christians around the father, around the bishop. And so each of these Eastern groups have their own hierarchy. And so therefore, by definition, they're a church uh, in, in, union, in union with the bishop, with their bishop. And the bishop is in union with with another bishop and with another and with another, and then of course, all with the Pope of Rome. So, and that makes the universal Catholic church. And so there are multiple liturgies because what happens is of course, in different parts of the world, you have uh, different traditions very um, uh, developing. There are about five liturgical families, all of these Eastern churches, these 22 Eastern churches, uh, and the Latin church uh, can be grouped under five liturgical traditions. The biggest one is the Latin tradition. Mm -hmm. And the Latin tradition itself, it's interesting, has various different forms. Before Trent, you had the different dioceses uh, it, with, their, with their own rites, and some of which still exist, the, 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 the rite of um, Milan, the Ambrosian rite, the rite of Toledo, the Mozarabic rite, the rite of Braga, uh, in, 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 Portuguese, in Portugal, and then other forms, the right of uh, the Sarum right, the Leonese right, and so on. And then, of course, the rights of the religious orders. So the Latin church in itself has uh, an ancient uh, variation, although we group that under the Latin tradition. The second, uh, well, actually, the largest of the traditions in terms of the number of churches that use it is actually the Byzantine or the Greek tradition, the tradition that descends from Constantinople. So even though the Latin church is numerically bigger, mm -hmm. the uh, Byzantine church actually has, uh, the, the, the Byzantine rite uh, is used by the most number of churches in union with the Holy See. And then of course you have the other, the, uh, the East Syriac tradition, the West Syriac tradition, and the Coptic tradition, which developed in Africa, Egypt, uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea, uh, and the, the Gears right, and so on. And then Armenia sort of sits a little bit by itself. It has sort of a very unique uh, history. It's actually the first nation that um, declared itself Christian, but its liturgy is, is a very uh, interesting um, uh, 
combination of Eastern and Latin influences. It's, it's very beautiful and very long, uh, as is the Coptic tradition. Uh, so, so really that's to give an answer. So again, just to show you that the Eastern church, the Eastern rite is actually not technically correct. There are many rites in Eastern Christianity. Uh, there are about four or five liturgical families. Uh, and then the 22 or so Eastern churches, each of which uses one of those rites. Mm -hmm. The largest family is the Byzantine or the Greek tradition to which I belong but numerically the largest is the Latin, although it's the minority in terms of the number of traditions, if you will, around the world. So even though it's the minority and that it's one, it's numerically the largest. And much of that was because of the great missionary push in, uh, in the second millennium of the Latin West. So with orders like the Jesuits and other orders that spread the Latin tradition throughout the world, uh, so for the first millennium, in fact, the, uh, the Eastern tradition was in one sense the, the more, quote, missionary because uh, say, uh, saints like St. Cyril and Methodius in the 10th century uh, took the Greek liturgical books, went to the Pope and said, well, you know, these you know, people over here, what we now know as Eastern Europe, they're not accepting the Latin rite. Well, what if we tried to translate this liturgy into the local language. Pope gave his blessing. Then they started in Moravia, which is Czech Republic now, uh, in sort of that area, and made their way down towards um, Eastern Europe, Bulgaria, and so on. Uh, took the liturgical texts, translated them into the vernacular of the time, which then became codified what we know as Church Slavonic. It's basically ninth century Bulgarian or something of that nature. I haven't studied it, but I know basically it's so that's really the, the, the liturgical language. In fact, they invented their own alphabet to take the Gospels, to take the liturgical texts to the people. They first invented Blagolithic, very complicated, and eventually they invented Cyrillic, which is used to this day. So saints are responsible for entire languages and scripts and texts. A very similar thing happened in Romania, of course, in Ukraine and Russia. Belarus and, and all those nations of Eastern Europe are the responsibility of, of, of Christian saints that, and that just goes to show you that Christ is incarnational. Uh, he, he takes truth and incarnates it in the world uh, for their salvation. He, he, he incarnates the gospel uh, for them and, and the liturgical texts through his saints. Um, and so uh, um, that's basically, if you will, um, many, many, many years of study of history and ecclesiology and ecclesi ecclesial history summed up in just, I don't know how many minutes that was, something like that. But it's, it's, it's a beautiful, um, uh, very, very um, troubled and yet very interesting and life-giving history is ours as, as the church. And uh, just to be its descendant is is, is remarkable. Yeah, that was pretty. That was interesting. Uh, um, another big difference, I guess, between the East and West would be the artwork, uh, icons versus statues. I guess if I read it right, the uh, Eastern rites don't use statues, but they use the icons. You put the candles in front of the icons, etc. In a sense, uh, if you actually go to very old Latin churches, so for example, if you'd go to Italy. Um, or if you were to walk into the National Gallery in London, where I'm from, 
and you will see that the, the pre-Renaissance ecclesiastical paintings, paintings that were used in churches uh, before, say, the Renaissance, an untrained eye would probably say, wow, that looks a lot like an icon. If you go to Italy, for example, and you see the mosaics, the ancient mm -hmm. mosaics. Now, Ravenna is an interesting example. Ravenna was uh, actually, uh, you know, when Justinian tried to reconquer Italy, he built these magnificent churches in Ravenna. But you see mosaics and, uh, and these, these older forms of art will have very similar principles to icons. But then eventually, yes, yeah, statues developed in the in the west now they existed in the east as well mm -hmm. um there's a common misnomer that statues were totally non-existent in the east they were they were statues in the east but there's a difference between saying that they were then used for worship oftentimes statues were erected as monuments mm -hmm. but in the west <clears throat> statues became to become they came to be um in well they came to be part of ecclesiastical decoration in and for worship Whereas in the East, we maintained uh, uh, old, and very often you can summarize things by saying in the East, we sort of maintained the older way, but, but in the sense that we didn't change or develop as much in some ways, the icons became codified in the East because of the heresy of iconoclasm. Mm -hmm. uh, the heresy of iconoclasm that took place really in the eighth and ninth centuries around the time before and after the Seventh Ecumenical Council in 787 in Nicaea, the, the iconoclasm, iconoclastic heresy, I, iconoclasm means just smashing of icons. They tried to destroy icons because they perceived them as being idols. You know, they, they various um, disasters happen in the empire and uh, people sort of tried to put two and two together. They ended up putting two and five together and getting seven uh, or, or getting getting 10 or something crazy like that. Uh, uh, and they, they sort of argued that, well, you know, Christians were beginning to use icons more and more in their churches and worship. God is obviously punishing us for these natural disasters. Therefore, it has to be the fault of the icons. So we have to go out and destroy them. In answer to that, St. Uh, Theodore, the Studite, St. John of Damascus, and of course, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, um, presided over by uh, an empress, Irene, uh, reasserted the orthodoxy of icons of sacred imagery. Now, interestingly enough, that council uh, had very little, um, I would like to use the word reception in the West, not that the West denied it, but the West, you know, with its statuary, it, it wasn't a debate in the West. And so you'll even read, you know, Pope Benedict XVI will say things like the West still has to really internalize the theology of the, of the Seventh Ecumenical Council because the, the, the theology of the, of the icon in color, every color, every line, every shade, it, it really is theology painted or written as the, the Greek word graphene uh, can mean painted and often is translated as it's written, so an icon is written. So as theology is written in a, in a book, so theology is written or painted, if you will, on the icon, whereas statues in the West act as more of a, a reminder, almost like a, what we would call now a photograph or something mm -hmm. uh, of someone, of a saint or, or of our Lord that existed. So there is a bit of a difference there, but again, the general idea is the same. We both have images, the images are there to be honored, uh, not, uh, not worshipped. Um, 
in, in the modern sense of the term worship, you know, in, in other words, to, to treat them as God. St. John of Damascus taught, uh, I worship, I'm not worshiping the wood, the wood of the icon, I'm worshiping he who was crucified on wood for my salvation. So you're going through the icon to the prototype. They are becoming as, as though they were portals into heaven, windows into heaven. And if you walk into an Eastern, a Byzantine Eastern church, you'll notice the iconostasis, which stands mm -hmm. between the, the, the altar and the nave. And oftentimes people will say, well, you know, you're hiding the altar, obscuring the altar. Well, actually, no, that's actually very modernistic. It's, it's rather, no, the, if it's a portal, it means you're revealing it even more than if it weren't there. So the icon is a window into the heavenly glory. And that's what the gold symbolizes to give just one example of the theology of the color. Gold means grace. Gold is glory. The icon is an image of heavenly glory. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know the, I didn't know the color portion. I still got a couple more icons here and I've had a couple comments uh, on the YouTube channel say thank you for using more the Byzantine icons, which are fantastic, as you know. Um, but you mentioned that kind of uh, the, uh, the iconoclasm. Not the iconoclasm. Uh, iconoclasm. Yes, my brain just went dead. Uh, so the West has the altar rails, which mm -hmm. if people don't know, you're not supposed to lean your arms over it like you're relaxing. It's the people's altar. Hence, when you got the uh, you got the rail, uh, what would you call the uh, the linen that comes over something? Some churches have it. Yeah, especially in Europe, when I was growing up, we would often see altar rails with the linen. And, and that's interesting because I always thought of it, I always thought of the rail as more of, in fact, in Portuguese, my mother's side of the family is Portuguese. So I actually grew up with, half of me was, was, was growing up in the Latin tradition. Uh -huh. And in Portuguese, they don't call it a rail, they call it the table of communion, a mesa da comunhão. And the, the linen that comes over it is the linen of the table. So the altar is not really, I mean, I know it's referred to as the mensa, as the table, but the altar of sacrifice is not exactly the same thing as the table. The table that I grew up in with was the altar rail in, in the Western tradition. So it's funny that you say that. It really is the table of the people in the Latin tradition. It wasn't my words. It's a... Uh, St. Charles Borromeo has a book, uh, The Instructions. Uh, if you haven't read it, it talks about everything. I mean, the confessional, is the, the penitent is supposed to be facing the altar. Uh, what is the altar rail? What, everything like that. And he brings down the stained glass windows. He breaks everything down. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, you, you know, get, the, get the theology of it instead of leaning on it. You see people like this or pushing up on it. You're going, man, get your arms off that. That's, that's the extension of the altar for us. It's the, like I said, the people's table. Uh, all right, so we got that, and you got the big wall blocking the, blocking everything. Was there was that always there at the, from the start, or was that developed down the centuries, or 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 not to be pedantic, but rather than rather to say the big wall blocking everything, the big wall revealing everything. Or revealing, my yeah, revealing. No, no, actually, it was developed uh, the the ancient uh, tradition of actually, I believe both the east and the west was a curtain. Uh, the curtain is, is, is ancient. In fact, uh, behind the, the two central doors, the two central doors in front of the holy altar uh, in, the, in the Byzantine uh, iconostasis, the icon stand, is covered with a curtain. 
And that really is a relic of something that was big. So in some of the Eastern traditions, the curtain is enormous and, and predominates. So in the, the uh, Malabarese tradition of India, the Coptic tradition, the curtains are even larger. The Byzantine tradition is door developed. Um, but uh, eventually what you started having were the two principal icons. Christ is always on the right or in the Latin language, uh, the epistle side of the altar. The Theotokos, the God-bearer, the mother of God, was all, is always on the left or the gospel side of the altar. And in, in many countries, traditionally, the men would stand on the Christ side, the women would stand on the Theotokos side. And that was also the case in my mother's culture, in the Latin tradition in, in Portugal growing up. That's what they remember doing. So again, there's a lot of, um, of continuity and there's a lot of... of, uh, of uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, between the between the the two sides, between the two halves or the two lungs of the church, um, and then eventually after iconoclasm, so after the the church proclaimed icons are orthodox uh, and they are to be used, can are to be and should be used. Um, eventually, they just start developing this iconostasis more and more and more elaborately. Mm-hmm. Kind of like in the West, you have, um, you know, movements toward the Gothic, beautiful, it just starts to just get grander and grander all the time. Um, it's interesting, I, I never liked Gothic churches growing up, and then I realized what I didn't like about them was the puritanical destruction of the Gothic tradition, that sort of great, firstly, the, the removing of the, the color and the graying, and then the destruction of the statues. I always understood Gothic as being this this empty gray, but that was not the case. If you go to these old beautiful gothic churches in europe they're full of color they're full of statuary the principles of gothic are so much alike the byzantine architecture the idea is that you raise the mind the heart the soul from earth to heaven and that's why our church was considered we always describe our church as as heaven on earth heaven on earth and of course the grand arches of the gothic architecture has this sort of the similar um, way of lifting you up from earth to heaven. So they just started developing the iconostasis. They just start, started developing the icons all throughout the churches. That, I mean, that had origins in, so if you go to the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, um, Justinian's great cathedral of, of Christendom, which is now a museum and uh, possibly, well, was a mosque, now a museum, and I, I'm hearing of movements to turn it into a mosque again. But the icon of Christ is still up there. The Pantocrator is still up there. Um, and so, you know, you had, you had that from the beginning, but it just became more and more elaborate and elaborated upon as the, uh, as the two millennia go along. So the whole idea is church is heaven on earth. You're supposed to feel as though you're in heaven. Yeah, when you were bringing that up, I remember uh, the Colby Academy did a uh, video on, I think it was, it wasn't a church at a JC, I don't think it was, but the one with St. Ignatius, uh, up the, the fly, the, the glory of St. Ignatius, it comes out in 3D, the paintings, and there's paintings all the way from all the way bottom, all the way to the top, and you just stand and just look and you're like, I can't stop looking up, it keeps going, and, yeah, yeah, that's the idea. It, the idea is to elevate you. Anytime you walk in there, it's supposed to take you out of, of the sadness of life. Yeah. But there's a prayer. Right in the middle of our liturgy, there's a prayer. Let us who mystically represent the cherubim 
and sing the thrice holy hymn to the life-giving trinity. That's our goal. Now uh, let us lay aside all cares of life so that we may uh, worthily receive the king of all, escorted invisibly by ranks of angels. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. There has to be a movement away from something. That's the first half. Mm -hmm. And then the second half, towards God. So you, that, and that's why penance, you know, that's why prayer, that's why Lent, that's fasting, all these practices. It, it, it mimics that. You have to take yourselves away from something, the, the fallenness of the earth, and then, then drag yourself away from that. And then, then start moving towards something. You know, I think uh, so many heresies, if you really think about it theologically, so many heresies are based on the total ignorance of the first half. You think it, quietism, Gnosticism, mm -hmm. um, many of the, the reformed uh, you know, ideas, you know, double predestinationism and things like that. The total unwillingness to deal with the first half. Remove yourselves from sin, from evil, from darkness first, so that then you can do the second half, which is then journey towards God. Now, we like to focus on the second half. But, we, but so this, this is why it's important to learn the liturgy, to listen to the liturgical text, to live these traditional rites. Why? Because it's all there. It's all in the liturgy. And if all you do is pray those texts, understand those texts, it will start to form you as a person and your theology. And then you, that, that's, that's how orthodox, in fact, the word orthodoxy means uh, right worship. Mm -hmm. Right worship. If you worship rightly, you will believe rightly. And in fact, in Latin, I think the Latin tradition, you will have this, this saying, lex orandi, lex credendi. Uh, that, that's the order. It's the order of the fathers. It's going to be the order of the future. So it's all in the text. Uh, it's all in the building. That's why it's so important to have this because it teaches you. It teaches you visually. Uh, it teaches you uh, hourly through your ears you hear these prayers being sung um, and so and in the west you have very very similar things as well so. yeah i just got my defense of the mass by bellerman that ryan translated so is there any mm -hmm. uh, byzantine books that would go like that Yes, we have some lovely commentaries on the Divine Liturgy, and they're very short and accessible, and I believe, yeah, they're available in English. Um, <clears throat> the one that actually my parishioners are currently studying right now, uh, right before Vespers, on yes, we have the, the Divine Office in our parish. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intrinsic part of our tradition, as it is in the West. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the commentary on the Divine Liturgy by St. Germanus of Constantinople. St. Germanus of Constantinople. Um, he just, you know, goes through the, the, the liturgy and describes the symbolism. Another one I can think of is the, the commentary on the liturgy by St. Maximus the Confessor, one of my very Attention, favorite fathers. Attention, your battery is... And um, I believe St. Thomas was familiar with Maximus the Confessor, but really Maximus uh, was a champion of orthodoxy uh, uh, in, 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 in the face of heresy, the monothelite heresy. Mm -hmm. But he writes these beautiful symbolic works on the liturgy. And so um, I would recommend St. Germanus, I would recommend Maximus the Confessor to read about. And then there are others as well, um, but those are, those are two accessible texts.
uh, as well as uh, the Cappadocian Fathers. I just thought about them, St. Uh, John Chrysostom, Basil the Great. Uh, Who those they guys? don't have commentaries on the liturgy, but St. Cyril of Jerusalem has a lovely uh, uh, series of five homilies on the mysteries of Christian initiation. He takes you through the mysteries of initiation. John Chrysostom does the same. He describes the rite and why we do what we do. Um, and uh, and St. Ambrose does something similar in, in the West. So you recommend all these saint guys. You know, like Joe Blow that wrote a liturgical, liturgical book? <laughs> yeah, I can recommend others. I just, I figured it's always a good idea to start with the saints. No, you're good. <laughs> um, <laughs> what about uh, music-wise? Music, yes. Well, uh, we do have... Um, I will say that almost all of our parishes have not gone through the liturgical upheaval of the 1960s and 70s. Thank God. You don't do it on eagle's wings? <laughs> well, you know, I think some of our parishes have tried to experiment with those kinds of things, but it's really not catching on, which is, you know, we have a traditional chant system. Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> I, I'm not an expert by any means, but uh, I know people that have tried to explain to me the, the similarities say, between Gregorian chant and, say, Byzantine chant. Because uh, the Byzantine chant is based on the Greek modes, the eight modes, and so we have a system of eight, uh, eight modes, which became the eight melodies. Um, it's in the East, it's really, um, for, the, for the most part, a cappella, as it was in, in the West. Now, a cappella doesn't, just mean you know singing in unison but oftentimes you have a cappella with a, a descant an eson which is a drone which i've also heard in gregorian chant done very beautifully mm -hmm. simple poly polyphonic things <clears throat> then of course that develops in the 19th century in russia <clears throat> into the magnificent slavic choirs that people often hear about you know when they think about russian or or uh, you know russian uh, ecclesiastical music but Again, you have this variation. You have the Byzantine chant, which is the more ancient, um, simpler uh, singing. And then things get a little bit more elaborate as things get, uh, really because the Russians were hearing the Italian choirs and they wanted to really copy that magnificent sound. But we've retained that. And that's the important thing. Now, I'm not saying that every parish sings it as well as a cathedral in Eastern Europe somewhere, but, but we've retained the traditional music the music is a cappella, um, and in fact, even in the vernacular, the music has been rendered rather well, mm -hmm. preserving uh, the melodies, uh, preserving uh, the, the modes, preserving the different, uh, some, sometimes very complicated um, sequences for feasts and hymns for, for the feasts. Um, now, in the West, uh, the church has undergone a rather different story in the last 50 years or so. So uh, I was thinking of Q&As. We we're not doing this live, but just me being, I only went to one Byzantine Rite liturgy mm -hmm. in my life, I think. And I was, this was back in Denver. And a couple of questions from that was, uh, when the priest is walking around, people were grabbing his, his vestments, giving a kiss, grabbing, touching. Is that... What is the significance in that? Because obviously, you know, when Father walks in, you move my bow to him, but we're not grabbing him. Right. Way. Um, I've seen that in a couple of Melkite, the Melkite Greek Catholic Church. That's like another Byzantine church uh, um, originating in, well, really they have um, 
faithful from like Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. Um, but they're Arab-speaking uh, uh, Byzantine Greek Christians. I've seen that a number of times. It's, it's a pious custom uh, in many of the Slavic parishes. I've not really seen that happen in the Slavic tradition, but it's a pious custom of venerating um, something holy and also of, um, you know, Easterners are very tangible people. Uh, Europeans in general, you know, we don't simply shake hands. We have to kiss people twice on the cheek and things like that. So <clears throat> it's a tangible expression of um, joining in the sacrifice. Uh, almost in the West, you say, pray, brethren, my sacrifice and yours. Meum ac vestrum sacrificium. It's sort of this notion. Is, I think sort of pious customs are developed out of that when he brings the gifts into the altar. Uh, the Melkites tend to go all the way down the church and up the middle. The Slavs tend to just do a quick shortcut in into the altar and so probably no no touching of the priest there um so that's a pious custom okay. that i've seen in yeah. a couple of places um the bells for the incense yeah so traditionally our censer has the 12 bells sometimes you know like in my parish we'll have a censer without bells for lent so potential seasons but if they have the bells you'll have 12 bells one of representing the 12 apostles one of them is silent representing judas who took his life and went into silence because of his betrayal the when people walk in and they uh, venerate the icon itself during was it during the liturgy or afterwards mm -hmm. is um i guess where would that start i mean they're not obviously they're not it's just like us kissing a statue but why is that part of the liturgy itself yeah so the byzantine liturgy it really utilizes the five senses to the maximum so the eyes in view the icons uh the ears with the music our liturgies are all sung almost all the prayers are sung. Uh, the nose, the smell of the incense, the sweet smelling incense, uh, very, very pleasant to us, many of them, many of the, the, the ones that are made. Uh, the mouth uh, in the Eucharist, the Holy Eucharist, and of course, touch and the kissing of the icons, the veneration of the icons. So it's a tangible, sensible uh, experience of, of contact with the divine. Um, many of the Slavic traditions, you'll see uh, uh, the absence of pews pews because being a protestant invention um, and so when you have a, a, an empty nave without pews the idea is that you go in and you take your place around the throne of almighty god in the courts of heaven remember you're in you're in your part of heaven now and just as you would in a banquet um, you would go and greet your family members so you would go to uh, an icon you know, for which you have a particular devotion and you would go and greet that person at that point. So you would, you would kiss that person, you'd embrace the person, you would speak to the person. So you would utter prayers to that person, light a candle uh, showing, you know, it's just an expression of your devotion. Sometimes it's a little unruly uh, in, in terms of a lot of people moving around. I don't think it's meant to be like that, but, but there's a certain sense of, um, can I say reverential movement or reverential freedom? The Eastern liturgy is also very processional based, um, you know, much more so than the Western liturgy. There are, there are many more processions in the East. Okay. And so there's a lot more physical movement, even in, in, in the time of Constant Constantinople, you'd actually have stational uh, movement within the same liturgy. They would go from church to church to church uh, and then, you know, finishing the Holy Eucharist huh. in, in the stational church and, and in fact that also existed uh, in in the west so you'll see these old missiles you'll say station station at 
whatever church, that's where they met, that's where they had the Eucharist. So movement was something um, that was part of the ancient liturgy, but it's not the kind of movement that people associate nowadays with movement, dancing yeah. and so on. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, basically the, the, the notion is we're on a journey to heaven. There is a procession to heaven. Uh, the bishop or his priest stands at the head and leads you in procession. That's why he faces east. Mm -hmm. Leads in procession his faithful, the body of Christ, to heaven. And this is sort of a, 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 kind of like a, an extension of that in a very small way. Um, so that's one thing that we, it's one of the noticeable differences that you'll see between the Eastern and the Western. The Western liturgy is often very regimented. You stand at this point, you sit at this point, you kneel at this point. Now that does exist in the East as well. You know, you, when the gospel is proclaimed, you stand. You stand still, you don't move. Uh, when the consecration uh, occurs, the sanctification of the gifts, you, you bow and you, well, so the ancient tradition of the East is the deep bow. You, you stand, you bow, and you stop what you're doing. You just stay still. Um, if there is a blessing, you don't do something else. You receive the blessing from the priest. But there are other points, um, probably because uh, you know, there's a lengthy hymn. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost willing to think that somebody somewhere got bored and thought, well, you know, this is going to take a while. So let me go over there and venerate this icon right now. Okay. Uh, and then eventually other people saw it and copied it and it just became a thing, uh, you know, hashtag movement or something yes. like that. But it just, but, it, but they were very reverential people. They, they were so pious. It was, it was just a, a, an expression of their deep love for uh, this, this holy image or this saint. It's totally different from the kind of movement that, you know, would be advocated for nowadays. It's, it's just, you're comparing apples and oranges there. Yeah, I was thinking of it. The, you hear about the old days when uh, people would do the stations of the cross during mass, or mm -hmm. uh, go over to a statue during mass, and you hear the bells for consecration. Everybody got down. That was one of your time to kneel down. Yeah, uh, yeah. You'll hear these things about the medieval church in Europe. Uh, you know, people would would once that consecration hit, everybody focused, and if you were outside the church, you would try to run in. Yeah, and you would be <laughs> silent, and you would focus on this this holy mo holy moment. And then eventually you'd go off to your own thing. <laughs> and that might be <laughs> one of the cool things about. Yeah, you, the bells yeah. outside and people from outside are coming in. And yeah, hey, the consecration's over. We're going to go ahead and go merry, merry way again. We, I went to Mass yeah. earlier. Wow. I, grew up, I grew up with those bells in Europe. You don't have those here in the States. But I grew up with that in Europe. You'd hear the bells. You would just be called to prayer. It's, it's an amazing sacramental. Oh, that, speaking of call to prayer, I was thinking of this. All right, I told a friend of mine that you're going to, uh, I was trying to get bring him in the, see Catholicism there you know not all my friends are kind of Catholics as no one else knows anyways but I told him so you're going to see some things that make you think we're Muslim bowing getting on our knees um the bells and such how much did I know it's off topic from Byzantine but probably heavily influenced how much did the Islam guys take from us in the terms of the call to prayer the, the bowing and etc I'm not speaking in an educated way. I've not studied it, but if you look at it from a layman's perspective, even I'm a priest, I'm going to demote myself for right now. I'm a layman, right? So looking at this from a layman's perspective, you can see quite a lot of similarity. You know, Islam prays five times a day. Mm -hmm. Well, that looks a lot like our divine office spread throughout the day. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the, um, the bowing with head touching the ground that's actually what we do during Lent. Mm -hmm. 
so, for example, you know, we, we have the ancient liturgy of the pre-sanctified gifts. That liturgy is so old that the Henoticon of Zeno in the year 614 AD attests to it. <laughs> That's how old it is. <clears throat> our Vesperal, our Vespers, our various hymns of Vespers, for example, Tranquil Light. Saint Basil the Great in the fourth century says, yeah, that hymn's so old, we don't know who wrote it. We still sing it. So one of the things you'll see in the pre-sanctified, which is basically Vespers with uh, uh, an elaborate rite of Holy Communion, which has been pre-sanctified on Sunday, we often have these bows, head touching the ground. Well, that looks an awful lot like Muslim prayer to someone who's coming at it from the outside. Even our garments, uh, our you know, prayer rope, things of that nature, people look to our, our monastics, our priests, and they almost say, if it weren't for the cross, which, we, which the, many of the priests are given permission to wear, they would not think that we were Christians because they're used to the, you know, the, the Roman collar, which obviously because we're in the West. So any of the lengthy hymns, uh, the lengthy uh, things of that nature. It just, while there are differences, yes, because Islam is a totally different religion, mm -hmm. you can see that they've taken some things. You can see that because they were they were close to the, the culturally to, to where the Christians were, that they have borrowed some things. You know, and I'm not educated, but that's just what I observe with my own lay eyes. I always wanted to ask somebody that, and just, I, when I was driving Uber, I see all the prayer works. Went, wait a minute! I think the prayer works came from us, and the bowing yeah. and etc. But uh, yes, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, for any layman out there that get upset about the new rite of mass, you can go to a Byzantine liturgy, and I'm sure there's one in your area. Uh, how is it easy to look it up? Is there like a? I know the fraternity came out with an app for the traditional mass. Is there ways to look up? Yeah, just a Google search will often, uh, often, uh, I would, you know, type Eastern Catholic Church near me or something like that, because it might not be a Byzantine church, it might be a Maronite church, that's another uh, Eastern uh, tradition, uh, the Maronites, in fact, the Maronite uh, uh, anaphora, Eucharistic prayer, is actually prayed in, um, in Syria, which is the closest thing to the Aramaic that our Lord would have spoken oh. to if you actually, and it, it must be done in that language. So if they do the entire liturgy in English, certain prayers have to be in Syriac. And so you're actually hearing the words our Lord would have spoken when wow. he, um, you know, at, at the Last Supper. So there they could be a Maronite church. Um, there could be a Byzantine church. Um, now Byzantine often, um, you know, as I said, the family's large. Mm -hmm. There are the Ruthenian Byzantines, the Ukrainian Byzantines to which I belong, the Romanian Byzantines and the Melkite Byzantines, and in two places in the States, the, uh, Las Vegas and New York, you have the Italo-Greek Byzantines. Oh. And then in a few other places in the States, San Francisco, Los Angeles, El Segundo, Denver, and uh, New York, you have the Russian Byzantines. Now, these are ethnic names, but it does not mean that they are for Russians only, for Ukrainians only, any more than the Roman church is for Italians only. And I often tell people this because people think, well, you know, if I'm not belonging to that culture, then I, I'm not supposed to go. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth because then only Italians should be going to the Roman church. 
the Catholic Church is universal, it's for everybody. It simply is a, is a descriptive term to show where that particular parish falls in that, remember that the whole excursus that I gave in the first part of the show was, you know, the different um, traditions around the world and they made their way here, mostly because of the immigrants, but now we're fourth, fifth generation, we have converts, my parish, for example, we are so ethnically diverse. People who come because of the right, they want to worship our Lord in, in accordance with the Greek rite of, mm -hmm. of, of, of the church. And so you would just type in, I would suggest Eastern Catholic or, or something of that nature, and then just look at the map. And you know, maybe you know, if you click on a diocesan website, you can find your city and find your closest church. And, and actually in many churches, you have a few, you have a few choices. So what you could do is, is uh, you know, learn actually. John Paul II used the, I think he used. It. He said, "I want everyone in the West to learn uh, the different rites, so that they can experience the ancient traditions of the East as well, to feed their own." So even if you don't start going there exclusively, it will at least help you uh, to realize that the magnificence, which is the Catholic Church. Um, you go into a, a beautiful rose garden. And you see roses of different colors. They're all roses. Yeah. But they look different. And they're beautiful. And the same way the Catholic Church is the same. The Catholic Church is the, the apostolic traditions are like these beautiful roses. Uh, and, 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 but they all look a little bit different. And, but if you know that they trace their lineage all the way back to this apostle or to that apostle, it, it really helps you to, to understand the magnificence, which is the gospel of our Lord. And, and the way that the gospel has spread throughout two millennia, uh, and, 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 and the fact that we still have these, um, these, uh, these ancient ways. And by the way, most of these liturgies were composed, uh, in, speaking of the Byzantine tradition, St. Basil the Great, St. John Chrysostom, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a just a private theologian that decided to compose, well, you could say he was a private theologian who then became a saint. But St. Basil the Great, who I believe scholars think, yes, much of that liturgy was composed by him, by him. And you're there. And at Vespers, for example, many of the prayers were composed by St. John of Damascus. And here we are praying those exact same words. We translated it into Slavonic English, whatever, but we're praying those words composed by the saint himself. And just to think that and how humbling it is and, and how you're not just reading a saint, you're literally doing the theology of the saint whenever you go to church. <laughs> that, that's how beautiful it is. It still blows my mind and I'm a priest and it still <laughs> blows my mind. Yeah. I understand. I, I saw uh, St. John Chrysostom painting, or I guess it would be an icon of him saying the Divine Liturgy. Mm -hmm. I've never seen that before. Man, that, was fan. that was beautiful. Imagine being there when he was doing that. And like you just said, it's you're actually there and what he came up with. But yeah, uh, there was a, uh, and just to show you how old our, I, I, I mentioned the pre-sanctified, you know, in 614, they said that, you know, and, and St. Basil about the hymn of Vespers, John of Damascus in the 8th century composing much of the hymns of Vespers. <clears throat> Codex Barberini 336 from the, I believe it was the 9th century. I think it's a scroll. I could be mistaken, but let's just presume it's a scroll. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of it being a scroll. <laughs> you unravel that scroll. 
and you'll read there the prayers of the liturgy in Greek, and you put it side by side with the book that I use every Sunday at the altar, much of it, the, the, the unchangeable part, the, the, the most ancient part of it, the Eucharistic prayer, it's the same, the same thing. We've just not changed. In fact, the East, there's a joke, you know, uh, how, many Eastern, how many Easterners does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is change. <laughs> What's that? We've added and built upon it and built this magnificent monument in honor of our Lord, um, as the Roman tradition has in its own beautiful way. And thus is the Catholic Church. Well, that was fantastic. We'll have to do this again on some other topics on it. Yeah, I'd be very happy to. Really enjoyed this. Well, before you go, can you give us a blessing? Sure, I'll give you a blessing uh, in, uh, in accordance with my right. May the blessing of Almighty God come down upon you with his grace and mercies and love for mankind always, now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you all. Thank you.